Hello and welcome to JOSPT Insights, the podcast that aims to help you translate quality research to quality practice. I'm Claire Ardern, the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Orthopaedic and Sports Physical Therapy. It's great to have you listening today. Today I'm handing over the JOSPT Insights reins to some of the world's leading clinician researchers in the field of hip morphology and hip pain. At JOSPT, we're really proud to work with the Yahir Collaborative to advance research and clinical practice for young people with hip pain. Over the coming months, you're going to hear more about what's new in the research and understanding of hip pain, including how it develops and how to best treat it, all geared towards helping you best help the patients and athletes you work with. Dr. Joshua Heary, sports physiotherapist and research fellow at La Trobe University in Melbourne, has the hosting duties today. Over to you, Josh. My name is Joshua Heary, and I'm thrilled to host this collaboration between JOSPT and the Young Athletes Hip Research Collaborative. Joining me today to discuss the use of diagnostic imaging for hip pain is Dr. Vasco Mascaretis. Dr. Mascaretis is a radiologist and assistant professor at Catalica Medical School, a group leader at MSK Imaging at Hospital Dartmouth in Lisbon, and the head of the Research Committee of the European Society of Musculoskeletal Radiology. Dr. Mascaretis' PhD research focuses on defining imaging parameters for FAI syndrome and how specific imaging measures relate to hip and groin symptoms, with his current studies focusing on the interaction between hip morphology and pathology. I'm really excited about this podcast, so let's get into it. Welcome to JOSPT Insights. Vasco, it's great to have you on. It's great to be here. I have a patient in my clinic who has presented with long-standing hip and groin pain. Based on my clinical assessment, I have a suspicion that this person may have a hip-related cause for their symptoms. Where should I start when I, if I'm thinking about imaging for this patient? I always, always in the back of my mind, think about what the imaging per se can give me to understand that clinical scenario. So having said that, imaging, in my view, is uh, essential to do three things. Diagnose, differentially diagnose, and also the prognostic significance of the imaging method I will apply. I usually start with radiographs. And why? Because we know that morphology, as far as hip is concerned, is one of the keys to understand pathology. Either radiographs can help you out with that specific question or not. And if not, we have to think about what are the main clinical entities that we have in mind. And why do I say that? Because different imaging techniques can give you a lot of different information. Of course, it, we tend to think, oh, I'm going for MRI because it's the method that is going to give me the most. But that's not the case because we all, always when we ask for an examination, I would say that you have to think about accessibility and costs. And that is paramount come back to the radiographs as initial information to assess for two things, morphology and to exclude osteoarthritis. And why? Because when you exclude osteoarthritis, you have all therapeutical possibilities in hand. And why did I talk about prognosis? Because when you have the whole picture of diagnosis, differential diagnosis and prognostics in your mind, 
then you know that if you do have osteoarthritis, your treatment will necessarily be different. When we're talking about radiographs, are there particular types of radiographs that you would think about in a, a young person with hip pain? Like, are you only concerned with the pelvis or do you want to focus also on, on the shape of the, the femur? Radiographs have bad and good things, right? Coming back to the things that we have to, to think is accessibility, as we talked, costs, and also age. And when you are in a young age group, then you have to think about radiation. It's a real concern. And we don't know yet the real dangers of radiation in the long run. So let's keep it tight and simple and ask for the main incidents that we can get the most of. I always think that studying the hip benefits from two main incidences. The AP pelvic radiograph view, either supine or standing. And why do I say that? Because there is no consensus on the literature on that. And the DUN45 view. And why the DUN45 view? So this is a view that is specific for the hip that allows you to appreciate the femoral and neck junction. This way, you have the best of two worlds. In the AP pelvic radiographic view, you will see the acetabular morphology and appreciate for osteoarthritis. On the DUN45 view, you will appreciate for femoral and femoral at neck junction morphology, thus excluding or diagnosing chem morphology. Maybe just coming back to the point you made earlier about the differences between, say, a supine X-ray and a standing X-ray. I know it's something that people often ask, and, and often patients present with either or. What changes on the X-ray when someone is, say, for example, supine versus standing? Uh, standing uh, radiographs and supine radiographs can give you uh, different information, and they have also pros and cons. The basic difference is in the way the pelvic bone tilts when you are standing or you are supine. So when you are standing, your pelvic bones are retroflexed. The sacrum gets more vertical. When you are supine, the pelvic bones antiflex. That is to say, the sacrum gets more horizontal. And if the, uh, the pelvic bones are antiflexed, then what happens is that the stabilum will be necessarily different in appearance. And why? Because the, the stabilum also will antiflex. And that can give you false impression of a focal retroversion of the stabilum. But then you have other things to think about. There's plenty of literature that says that if you want to appreciate the joint space, you'd better go with standing radiographs. But there is also other issue. If we think about it preserving the surgery and you go through the literature, then you'll see that most of papers that were published on e-preserving surgery and e-preserving uh, science were performed with supine radiograph. So if you are really trying to compare things and to compare studies and to compare the research, you might want to go with standing, uh, you might want to go with supine radiograph. Another part, point you want to think about is sometimes when you have surgery on the early OS op scenario, 
you might have a difficulty on getting another radiograph that you can compare with in standing position. What is your um, suggestion around MRI and when that may be indicated in a younger patient with, who presents with hip pain? I really think MRI is an outstanding imaging method. Why? Because it's very sensitive. It can be very specific if you know what you are looking for, but it has issues. It is costly and it's not still as available and accessible as we would like. Really, MRI makes all the difference. And for me, is the, the imaging method that we can rely on the future. Whenever uh, I see patients that don't improve after one month of therapy after a presumptive diagnosis, I really think we should get a, a, an MRI if possible. Or if you think about specific pathology like a trochanteric tendinopathy or bursitis or things that can be shaded by ultrasound, which is accessible and available, then we should go for it. Yesterday, I had a, a patient in clinical practice with a pain over the crest, and she had an examination uh, with MRI boots. And when I observed the patient, I said to myself, this is a ileal tract pain syndrome, a proximal one. So with ultrasound, I confirmed the diagnosis and that's it. And there's no needs at all for an, an MRI. So different clinical entities, different presumptive diagnosis will direct you to what examination you will get. And the last thing that I would say it's important about MRI, it gives you prognostic data. Because more and more, we see patients with Tony's radiographic classification like grades one or inferior. And they really have advanced chondropathy. These are the three main points. Gives you the diagnosis. Most of all, the, the differential diagnosis. And lastly, the prognosis. If we think about MRI, what information can it give us about the hip joint itself? Firstly, you will have the information about morphology, for sure, both the acetabular part and the femoral side but also will give you information on soft tissue. There is no other imaging method that can give you, with eye sensitivity and specificity, the information about damage to the soft tissue. Labral damage, chondral damage, and of the periarticular structures, muscles, tendons, bones, joints, and we are talking about a lot of joints and structures. Two days ago, I saw um, a young woman with um, chronic hip pain, untreatable, and she came for MRI. She didn't have a joint problem. She didn't have a tendon problem. She didn't have a sacroiliac joint problem. She had endometriosis that was giving her these complaints, and she scheduled uh, for a surgery to address that issue. So. Can you tell me which imaging method would give you the diagnosis other than MRI? None. And I suspect that this patient would go on therapy, on surgery for hip problems that she didn't have the differential diagnosis capability of the MRI is for me the main reason that we should invest in this uh, examination whenever we are in doubt 
clinically. MRI gives you the morphology that we need to study the hip, gives you this liberal damage that we need to know if there is any in order to think about interventions. It gives you the control status of that patient, which is the most absolute biomarker of prognostic significance as, as far as uh, hip health and hip future is concerned, and also gives you all the difference, differential diagnostic capabilities. Often what happens here in clinical practice in Australia is that the, the patient has had an MRI, but it only focuses on the hip joints. So it has maybe two or three different sequences. Do we need to also include a, which you mentioned before in your case, a, a wider view of the pelvis, or should we be thinking about that to enable what you mentioned about differential diagnosis in a, in a young patient with hip pain. This represents a common clinical problem that we really need to think about. And this also raises two different questions. How should people and our colleagues ask for an examination when they suspect of hip pain? And a second, what are the protocols that are most important to to have in place in order to address this, in these issues. Sometimes you can't control what our colleagues ask for uh, when they ask for an MRI. I really don't care about what they ask. I will do what I think it's needed for that patient. My protocol addressing hip pain is comprehensive. I will focus on the hip and there I will do the standard 2D um, sequences, axial, coronal, and sagittal and both on D1 or D1-weighted images and on a fat-saturated, fluid-sensitive sequences in these planes. But usually, I also do radial sequences to address femoral morphology. But all the time, I perform also, at the end of, of the examination, a bilateral, axial or coronal. I prefer axial because that's a radiologist thing. We prefer axials for the old pelvis, to screen for fluids, for inflammation in other places. And this way, you can exclude easily active sacralitis, active antithesitis on the glutean crest, syphilis, pubis problems, all the gamut of a differential diagnosis that you, that you can think about. This patient I talked about, uh, uh, the endometriosis, we saw it on this actual T2 bilateral for the old uh, pelvis because she had fluid in the pelvis, she had thickening of the peritoneal cavity. Don't focus only on the hip joint. And that way you will be sure that you are not missing something major. The need to think outside the box, especially in someone who's not responding to conservative or exercise-based treatments. Pascal, so we, we've got our, our X-ray and MRI. What radiological measures are we using to try and work out the presence of ham morphology or pincer morphology? Are there some things that you often use in your, in your daily practice? If you go through the literature, you can easily be overwhelmed with the tons of measurements and uh, ranges of values that you need to work with. And well, it's okay. It's okay to be overwhelmed. I really think that we can sum things, sum up some things in order to try to, to get this um, more understandable. You really need to, to address mainly three things whenever you see an, an x-ray. 
The first is the joint space. You really want to see if the joint space is altered or not, because the, that is the main sign of osteoarthritis. You can move to the femoral or the stillar, uh, part morphology. And on the femoral side, I usually focus on sphericity of the femoral head. The main parameters that I usually use is the alpha angle and the offset, either on a done 45 view or in a radio MRI imaging. This will give you the sense of and objectively give you the sphericity of the femoral head. Whenever the femoral head is not spherical, the alpha angle will be increased and the offset will be decreased. You don't want to use the alpha angle on an AP pelvic radiographic view. That is That doesn't really make sense. Why? Because you will be missing a lot of deformities. On the femoral side, the other parameter I always address is the cervicodiaphyseal angle. Why? Because coxavalga and coxavara are important diagnoses. They can be surgically uh, addressed if needed, and they have associations with other kinds of pathologies. For instance, just to give you an example, a coxavalga is associated with ischiofemoral impingement. So having all this in mind can give you an overall sense of morphology. The third thing I want to address on the femoral side is femoral torsion. This kind of parameter is being thought as one of the major culprits as far as impingement is concerned, uh, but this can be only appreciated on CT or MRI. You have to have a guts over the femoral head and then over the knee in order to address uh, femoral torsion. The femoral side is complete. You only need to address sphericity with either alpha angle or offset, cervicodiaphyseal angle to appreciate Koshavara and Koshavalga, and thirdly, femoral torsion. Moving on to the stabler side. So on the stabler side, things get complicated, right? <laughs> because you have uh, plenty of factors that you need to consider, but let's try to make it simple. Think about two things, coverage and version. When I think about coverage, I'm thinking about superior coverage. And on this topic, I usually use two parameters, the stabler inclination and the center edge angle of weaver. And this will give you the sense of superior coverage. About version, then you will use the radiographic signs that will give you the sense of the relation between the anterior stellar wall and the posterior stellar wall. You will appreciate the retroversion by the existence of the crossover sign, the ischial spine sign, and the posterior wall sign. These are all signs of retroversion. These are harder to appreciate and you have to have some experience to, to acknowledge what you are actually seeing. Summing up, I see most of the time these parameters on the femoral side, on the stellar side, and then also the joint space. The clinicians is obviously a bit of a, as you mentioned, it's very difficult when you're reading through literature to uh, make sense of what you should be actually using in this patient. So I think you've done a really, really nice job there. And we might try and, uh, and link in some of your work in, in that space, Basco, to 
and some resources for the listeners because I know you've done a lot of really good work in terms of explaining these parameters in a, in a really digestible way. Where, where do you see imaging going in hip pain? What's the future in this space? Whenever I think about it, I think about two main things. Firstly, our main goal. Our main goal is heat preservation. And our second goal is to try to come up with an assessment that can give you reliable information, easy to get information, and accessible. I also try to link these parameters with the natural history of disease. Natural history of disease, particularly in FAI syndrome, it's important for us to understand where are we going and when should we intervene, when should we image. And if you think that this kind of disease has the stages that we didn't think about like 10 years ago, so you have firstly the susceptibility phase, then you have the asymptomatic disease phase, then you have the clinical syndrome, and then you will have osteoarthritis. So there are four phases. My question is, where should we image? Where should we intervene? And my sense is that you will intervene sooner and sooner. Why? Because you will have um, more interventions and therapeutical methodology to help patients. I think diagnostic capabilities and therapeutical capabilities are extremely interlinked. Sometimes there is no point of diagnosing extremely early cartilage degeneration if you can't do anything about it. So these are important questions for us to understand where imaging is going. I really think that imaging is one step ahead of theoretical capabilities as we know them right now. Actually, you have technologies in place that are advanced, which still don't have a clear application. Just off the top of my, uh, my head, I, I remember cartilage mapping. So cartilage mapping has been around like decades now, and we still don't have the perfect usage for it. Cartilage mapping gives you what? Gives you the quality of the cartilage that you have, but in a level, on a biochemical level. You have interventions that can help improve the the biochemical composition of cartilage? No. There are the interesting technologies, technologies that we have in place, namely cartilage mapping, dynamic imaging, which is something that is more and more important, and 3D imaging and 3D printing. And they are also very important, both for the diagnosis and for patient education. Of course, artificial intelligence, it's impossible to get by with it. And we use it every day now. When we think about artificial intelligence, uh, we get lost about the chat GPT and, 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 that, and that stuff, but we've been using it for a decade now because artificial intelligence means that you can segment, detect, and classify patients. And we also already use segmentation and detection abnormalities with AI as we speak. We will, in the future, get more from it as far as classification is concerned. Because when we can classify, uh, classify patients in terms of risk and in terms of management on an individual basis, then you will reach the holy grail. 
personalized medicine. It sounds like there's some exciting, uh, exciting developments to come in the hip space, which is, I think, is hopefully going to be- benefit everyone, clinicians and patients alike. So that's really, really great to hear, Vasco. So thanks for coming on, and I think the listeners will no doubt benefit from your knowledge in the space of imaging, and hopefully be able to use it in a more systematic and thoughtful way. So thank you very much. Thank you, Josh. It was a pleasure to be here and talk to you. Thanks for listening to this episode of JOSPT Insights. For more discussion of the issues in musculoskeletal rehabilitation that are relevant to your practice, subscribe to JOSPT Insights on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google, or your favourite podcast app. If you like JOSPT Insights, help others find us. Tell your friends and colleagues and rate and review us. To keep up to date with all the latest JOSPT content, be sure to follow us on Twitter, we're at JOSPT, and Facebook, we're JOSPT Official. Talk with you next time.